Kamud Kalia is the Chief Information and Technology Officer at Silence, responsible for the strategy and implementation and management of the infrastructure and applications that support Silence's business processes. On this episode, he and Ian talk all things AI, including how Silence is using AI to protect everything under the sun and the challenge of finding the right way to use technology to achieve business outcomes. This podcast is sponsored by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce. Salesforce just introduced the Lightning Platform Mobile, the low-code mobile app development platform that empowers anyone to easily build, publish, and manage AI-powered mobile apps for employees and for customers. Find out more at salesforce.com slash build mobile apps. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org, and in studio... Kamu, what's going on? Hey, thanks for inviting me here. I'm uh, excited to participate in this legendary podcast and <laughs> add to uh, add to the conversation. Yeah, we were talking before this, and you said that you've had a few friends on. So, uh, and they didn't they didn't they didn't text you and say, "Hey, I was on this brilliant podcast. You need to come on." They did not. It's like this underground secret thing that I didn't know about. So, yeah, yeah. I feel like I'm late to the party, but I'm here now. I love it. Really excited to talk to you today. You've been a CIO multiple times, and now you have the CIO and CTO titles at Silence. So we're going to get into all that. But first, how do you have some uh, references on your uh, LinkedIn as just IT guy? You know, that's probably just me being lazy, trying to fill out my profile. I was like, uh, I spent some time at this company, but you know, who really cares what I did 20, 30 years ago? So I just put IT guy. I love that. That's pretty great. And it, it harkens to the, uh, hey, gra- grab the IT guy. And, uh, and now, you know, there's IT gals and guys all over that are looking for something a little bit more than just being, uh, just being the, the IT guy. So let me, let me try and expand on that. And yeah, I'll, I'll justify my laziness. Back in those days, right, if you've been around in IT as long as I have, there was a time where you could pretty much know all the IT you needed to know as a single individual, right? And the profession has become so specialized now with so many disciplines, you can create a whole career in a single discipline. You could be a database guy forever, yeah, right? Or you can be a particular type of developer or a network guy or something. But 30 years ago, you know, one person often did all of that stuff or any technology professionals expected to know all of it. And at that time, I think you could probably learn it all as well. Uh, and then it started to really balloon through the 90s and fragment into all these specialist areas. So I think, you know, maybe it's even maybe exaggerating to say I was IT guy back in those days. <laughs> you were the only one? The only one that no, worked no, for the no, company? There were a lot more. <laughs> no, I meant for the company. It was just then. Just... No, there was plenty more. Um, so let's go back in the Wayback Machine a little bit. 2008, Computer World said you were among the 100 premier IT leaders. You've been a CIO multiple times. You've led teams that have won a bunch of different awards. I kind of want to start with how have you seen that change? How have you seen the role of IT change? So when you've been uh, trying to do the CIO thing as long as I have, eventually you'll get it right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, think of it as uh, I just keep practicing until I keep getting better. I think what sort of interests me is that um, I've changed industry each time I've changed um, my CIO role. And so, or you could say the last two are both technology, but 
This is more specialist in security. Sometimes the problems are the same, but often they're very context specific to a particular company. And so you're trying to help a company grow and that company's mission is going to vary from some other company's mission. And I think to be a successful technology executive, you're really just another general manager on the team, on the executive team. And you have to think of yourself that way because you know, you look at what you're doing is it's all about business outcomes. It's not really about the technology, right? We're doing technology because we love technology, but we can't just go randomly deploy technology. It's got to be for some business outcome. We're trying to, you know, change something, right? Improve something, whether it's growth for the company, operational excellence, productivity of the workers, customer experience. Like we're trying to do something to make the company better in some way. And so you've got to share the rewards and the pain, right, of getting things right or wrong with the rest of the team. And that's when IT works. In your current role, you you kind of embrace the CIO slash CTO. Was that something that you consciously like wanted to do? Was it something that was more needed at the company? Uh, do you think that this stuff matters? Do the, you know, titles <laughs> titles matter here for these specific things? Or is it just more just internal structure of the company and how people want to align and, and align their teams? Yeah, so I think in a tech company, the CTO title is usually the technology executive that sets strategy in terms of what technology stacks are being used, what technology products are being built and how, what the next set of features are going to be. So it's a, it's a technology role, but it's market facing. And the CIO role is typically internally facing within a company. And some companies will call the CIO the CTO. So again, it's context specific. But when we talk about CIO, we generally mean someone who's internally facing to the company and is trying to run the enterprise, right? All the business operations of the company and make them work as well as possible. And so, you know, I've got both sides of that at Silence. And I think it was, you know, my boss, the CEO, uh, Stuart McClure, who hired me, who just kind of kept throwing things at me until I, <laughs> I cried uncle. So, you know, he uh, said, hey, look, you know, our CTO left uh, to be the CEO of a startup. And so there was a vacancy on the team. And he, I guess he didn't want to hire another body. So he yeah. just said, all right, you can do this too. And uh, something similar happened a bit later on with customer support. And so I took that on as well. And then now we're going through uh, a post-acquisition integration. And so, you know, I'm helping out with that too. So I think... Um, when you're experienced, which is another way of saying old, you could probably do many things. And so I guess in a startup, there's more scope to do many things. I want to get into the acquisition piece a little bit later, because I think I think that there's there's an interesting kind of story to tell there. But I didn't realize you took on customer support. How does that like integrate into like your oh, overall right, right. technology? So, so there is some logic for this, what maybe seems as random changes. But if you're a CIO in a tech company, um, tech companies sell to CIOs, right? So you generally can empathize with your customer, right, your buyer, and understand what makes sense. So there's some logic to having the person who's selling to the CIO community, right, who is the CIO, also having a say in what products are going to serve that market and what CIOs are willing to pay for and, and want, want to have to improve their businesses. And then it also makes sense that when they have trouble with those products and they want to complain about them, you're collecting that feedback. So you can put it back into developing the next improved version of your product. And so I think there's some sort of nice 
cycle of virtue there or, or some synergy of having those functions together. We recently had an episode, which was a really good one, where we had a chief architect who was kind of talking about this sort of things. Similar sort of idea of how do we position within this? Who owns what? Who's building product versus working with customers versus like the internal side of things? Do you feel like the fact that you can see all of those pieces that you're, you know, working with customers, that you're close to the product and that you're working internal processes allows for like a, a clarity of vision across all of those of how you can do better customer experience, how you can shape that those uh, those customer journeys and figure out a better way that the company can solve those problems. I mean, it seems like with each increased amount of responsibility, you also have an increased amount of visibility to the organization and you know cross-functional ability to make change happen faster. Yeah, I think the the real advantage is there's no one else to persuade, right? Because you're having that conversation with yourself, in effect. Yeah, totally. So, you know, there's there's some shortcutting there of time in decision making and getting agreement on things. So I think that's sort of the biggest benefit. And then, you know, it's like I said about you know feeling accountability for business outcomes. You know, if you own more of the business, then you're going to be like an equal stakeholder in the success of the company. And so I think you're much more pragmatic about making all the trade-offs you need because you know there's always more things than you can actually do. So I think you become more of a pragmatist or a realist about what really needs to be done. You develop a better sense of judgment, which I think is often a problem in a lot of companies that CIOs struggle with. Yeah, I mean, I, for for those of our listeners out there who are on a team where this isn't the case or they aren't as close to the business outcomes, what's your advice there? I mean, how can you know a CIO get closer to having that type of responsibilities? Obviously, you know, you've done this a few times, so you probably easier to uh, to get, you know, you have that credibility of saying, well, this is the way I've done it right and wrong in the past, and this is how I kind of see it happening. For those folks who don't have that, what would you recommend? Well, first of all, people don't often care what you've done in the past. <laughs> Great point. <laughs> it's, it's all about here and now. Yeah. Um, and there's usually a, a lot of urgency around the now. You know, I think there's, again, I don't want to sound trite, but there's some common sense things that a- any manager or leader should be doing which is getting along with their peers yeah uh spending time with them understanding what their challenges are and how they can help and so i think most cios have figured that out right they they know that they have to be a part of that conversation and even if they're not you know at the uh, c-suite in terms of direct report to the ceo or anything they're probably one step removed from that so they still have access to all the decision makers and all the information they need and so as long as they're in the conversations and they're having a business dialogue about outcomes and not about the technology per se that's going to enable that outcome, then they're already doing it. And if they're not, if they're only focused on the technology and they're not having those business conversations, then they're not really a CIO. They're just a senior technology guy. That's pretty interesting. Do you think that there are some like, you know, tactical things that you've done in your career that have allowed you to, you know, get to know your peers better? Yeah. I mean, there's um, all sorts of opportunities where you get to try and spend time together, right? It could be team buildings, offsites, that kind of thing, or, you know, which are meant for that, or you just seek out opportunities, right? So 
you know, instead of just going to meet someone in their office, why don't we go and grab a coffee or have lunch or, or something, right? So you get to know the individual. And then, you know, you're always going to try and adapt your style to suit the individual so you get the most productive working relationship. And, you know, you can't really do that until you know the person. So I think there has to be, you know, established common ground, all the kind of things you would do, right? A bit like dating, I guess. Yeah. Um, but, you know, get to know the person and then understand what they need, start delivering on that, build some trust. And once you've got trust, which you generally get through, yeah, reliable execution, then you really can do some interesting things because now you don't have to persuade them anymore. Now they're going to just trust your judgment and say, all right, I know you're going to do the right thing. You know, all right, let's work on this together. And it's much easier to partner with people if you do that. What are some of the early mistakes you've made as a CIO where, you know, that's, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a whole, that's, <laughs> we could do the entire episode on that. Um, but you know, like some of those things that you've kind of carried with you this time around and said like, well, I'm not going to make this mistake again. You know, sometimes you can't help yourself. And, you know, to characterize something as a mistake, you know, maybe a tactic. Because sometimes if you told people the truth up front, they'd never buy into what you're saying. <laughs> totally. <laughs> right? So uh, there is, a, there is a, a sort of a knack of sort of getting yourself into a situation where if you told somebody this could take two years, they would never do it. Or if you said, I'll deliver you something this quarter, and then we can build on that, then they're more likely to to buy off on what your vision is. But if you if you unveil the whole thing, it'll overwhelm them. And so sometimes there is a unveil it in stages as you go. And sometimes that's not even just for executive colleagues, that's even for your own team. They might get overwhelmed with, you know, the grandness of something you put in front of them and they'll be like, we can't do this, we can't pull this off. And so I think you've got to make something look like it's realizable before they write you off as a nut who's trying to like, do something impossible and waste a lot of money and time. Gosh, what are the, um, what are the, what are the things that we're eating? The, oh, the biltong. The biltong. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, how do you eat a, a kudu one biltong <laughs> at a time? Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, I think it's a great point because a lot of people have the grand vision that they, you know, they see the five-year plan stuff. Some people don't have that at all, but other people do. You know, they see like, I know exactly where this company should be. And especially, I'm sure going from, you know, big company to small company or, you know, more established to startup-y where there's a ton of opportunity to, you know, to make an impact. Talk to uh, Eric Tanik Koopa about this, about how you step in and you're like, there's so many things to improve that you just got to make sure that you're, you know, putting the next foot forward and improving the things at those, you know, those, those quarterly targets, because that's what people, you know, they're like, we're winning. Did you ever feel like there were certain type of business wins that you would try to achieve early on and, and stack that up and say, Hey, look at this business, you know, the go to sales, go to marketing, go to whoever it is ops and say, Hey, I fixed this for you. You're on my, you're on my 90 day priority list. Like I said, I'd do this in the first 90 days. I did it. Here's, you know, here's what you wanted. You know, in a, in a startup, it's all about now. Yeah. Right? And so <laughs> 90 days now, yeah, yesterday, like, uh, what have you done for me lately? So yeah, that was great last quarter, but what are you doing now? And so there's always that pressure of the urgency of now. Right. And I think to some extent that's true of bigger companies too, but it's definitely true of startups. And so eventually you've got to sort of fulfill your promises to the people that you made wait. Right. So I can't help you customer care because I'm helping sales. But at some point, you've got to come back and help them. You can't say forever, 
I'm just doing sales because that's too one-dimensional, right? The company didn't hire you to be the sales support guy. They hired you to be a CIO for the enterprise. You've got to make the whole company better. But you've got to make some trade-offs, right? You have limited time and resources and you've got to make some trade-offs. And that's where you need the patience of the rest of the team to help you in getting to those judgment calls and, and making the priority decisions. I want to get into some of the startup stuff on specifically around the acquisition. Before this, in previous roles, were the companies that you were part of uh, acquiring smaller companies? Were you involved in, in acquisitions of other companies? And if so, how was it to be on the other end of this, integrating into a larger company? Yeah, so um, usually I've been an acquirer. You know, one of the companies I worked with probably did 20 or 30 deals while I was there. Wow. And, you know, we I had a guy on my team that was dedicated to M&A. And so, you know, we had a playbook and, you know, we had a way of... On your, CI, on your CIO team, it didn't fall under someone else? It wasn't like M&A part of the oh, org? Oh, we didn't drive all the deals, but I had a technology guy dedicated to supporting M&A. Like cross-functional? Um, yeah, the, the individual was um, kind of like a, an architect. Oh, cool. And it was his job to evaluate what the technology assets were that we were about to acquire through any business we we're buying in. And so we could put a value to those as part of the case for doing the acquisition. And then also for planning the integration, we had to know like what it was going to cost roughly to go complete the integration and put that all in the business case for the deal. Yeah. And we were doing so many deals, it became a full-time job for someone on my team. And so I would generally look over all the recommendations and maybe get involved in the really big deals. But we were doing so many. And for each deal we did, there's probably nine or 10 we didn't do, but we still had to look at them all. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it really was a full-time job for probably more than one person. Um, we just overloaded this one guy who was really good. So yeah, I mean, so I'm familiar with that side of it. And, you know, I can tell you all the different deal types and processes and, you know, how a deal gets done. But yeah, to be on the other side of it did feel a bit different because, you know, although I know all the steps, you know, it never felt like it being done to me, right? So yeah. someone else is asking me all the questions and... You know, I'm the one saying, I already told you that like three times. Like, why are you asking this again? And it's because different people get involved in the process, yeah. right? So there's the acquiring company, but then there's a banker and a lawyer and, you know, other folks. And so some of those are getting different versions of data, right? And so they'll look at something and say, oh, we're outstanding these requests. And I'll say, I think I already gave them, but <laughs> maybe I gave them to some other guy and they don't talk to each other. So there was some of that going on which was you know frustrating because everything has to be done on their timetable right and it doesn't matter if it's weekend or you're you know on a flight to Europe or something right you just got to land and go deliver all the stuff they asked for so that was sometimes challenging uh, not what I expected you know because I saw it from the other side and if you're one step removed from the people collecting the data you don't see how annoying it is yeah the people you're requesting and how disruptive it can be you know that's where it felt a little bit different when you were on the acquiring side, were there times when after an acquisition was made where you were um, you know, implementing the technology, you're adding it to part of current business processes or product or whatever, whatever it is, that you felt like this wasn't really a fit? Like, <laughs> like we, we made this acquisition and we're just kind of not going to be able to use this in the way that we thought that we were. There, there was this one time where, you know, the... And this is where you know, I spoke to you about business pragmatism, yeah. right? And this is where sometimes that trumps what's the best technology. And so we, you know, had acquired a business which had a 
consistent technology platform across all the markets they were doing business in. And our equivalent business didn't have that because we were still building that platform. And so we had it developed for one market and we were now going to build it and extend it to the others. And so the sort of team looked at that and thought, how long will it take us to go build? Well, it'll probably take about 18 months or two years to do what we've done and really optimize it for each market. But it'll be the best, right? We'll be the best in the industry. But we can have one now. It's not as good as what you could build, but we've got it now and it's in market everywhere. Yeah. So it can do the job. And so we made the choice to accept an inferior technology stack that we knew was going to be obsolete in a few years. But it was better to be in market and running a, a single platform now than to wait two years. That's interesting. And, you know, it was a compromise that had its consequences. So later on, we hit all these problems that we'd anticipated. But, you know, the trade-off we'd made was it was better to be in market now than wait. And, you know, part of the cost was I'd lost a lot of the tech talent that I had that were like, oh, look at what you're asking us to to start doing now is working on this stuff, which is already obsolete when we're building this, like the best of the industry. So they basically left. They're like, wow. we don't want to work on that stuff. So there are consequences. But if you look at the business outcome, we could acquire a business and not miss a beat and just keep on operating that business and actually move our business onto that platform and still operate it at relatively low cost. So, you know, that was the right business decision but it had a technology impact, which probably if you left it long enough, you, at some point you have to invest in upgrading that platform. If you left it long enough, you'd have real remorse over that decision. But you know, at the time it was the right thing to do. So there can be times like that where the technology part of me is is almost ashamed to accept that outcome, but it's the right business outcome. Switching gears, I wanna talk about what you all are building at BlackBerry Silence and the type of problems that we're kind of facing kind of as a as a as a country and as a as a technology community um, and as a business community what is the impetus for why what you're working on is so important so i think i'll start with the mission of silence when silence was founded which was nearly 7 years ago now the mission was to protect all people devices and things like computers and and you know iot things under the sun. So that was the mission. And, you know, the, we took that quite seriously. Like, we want to protect everything that we can. And the way we did that was by, I say we, I wasn't there at the time. The way it was built was an AI based platform that would predict threats. So it would analyze something, right, some piece of software and say, this is bad or this is good, based on the level of training of and maturity we put into the machine learning models. And as these models developed over time, you know, so we're now talking an old and experienced AI, right? If it's six years old, it's had a lot of time to train and learn and improve. And so these models are quite mature. There's almost nothing in terms of bad software that they're going to see that they haven't seen before. And so it made it very effective with a high degree of reliability at picking out good from bad. So when you go into an enterprise and you just turn the technology on, it just starts working. It just starts blocking things. Yeah. And sometimes the problem is understanding why it blocked something because it might look safe. It might look quite benign, but the AI stopped it. And so you take a second look and you discover, ah, actually, there is something here that we need to take care of. 
And so, you know, when our when our customers sort of deployed that technology and found that, you know, those that had deployed managed to escape the big um, ransomware outbreaks of a couple of years ago. You know, you probably remember WannaCry or oh, Petya, yeah. right? So our customers escaped all that. Uh, whereas a lot of their peers in the industry got really badly hit. And so I think that was a really effective demonstration of the power of AI and its ability to predict threats. Um, That's a back, real back, life bake off. <laughs> yeah, well, we back tested our model and said, you know, when was the last version of our software that would have been effective at detecting this threat? And it was about two years. Wow. So if you hadn't upgraded our software for two years, you'd have still been safe against those threats. So think of what that means. If you've got the software today and you don't upgrade it for two years, you're potentially still good, right, for new threats. Maybe the cycle changes, maybe the threats come past it. But the point is that you know, we can operate in a sort of disconnected and you know unsupervised state and still be good. Why were you so excited about coming on as CIO? You know, you've you'd spent time in, in banking, you'd spent some time in technology. Uh, like you said, you kind of jumped around industries. But why why cybersecurity? Why now? And why was this something that you felt really strongly about? So I I left the energy business and went into tech, high tech, and so Akamai was. It was an established sort of internet technology company, but it was progressively moving more and more into security. And it was coming at it initially from internet security, and then it was started to get more into enterprise security. And you know, I could I could see the wave, right? I could see the threat landscape was changing. I could see that cloud had changed where enterprises were, and I just thought this is an interesting space to get into. And there's a lot of fear and ignorance about the space and you know so i thought right this is this is a really great mission to be a part of we're making society better and safer and so that's what really attracted me and so i think it was um initially sort of the mission and then meeting the founders and the rest of the executive team just made it seem like a good fit and i'd always kind of wanted to have that startup experience and see what that was like um so uh, yeah, it was attractive for a number of reasons, and you know my time was done. Uh, Akamai, it was time to move on. I've been there; it's the longest job I've held down ever, and so I thought, okay, let's try something new. And uh, you know, it was a good space to be in, and I'm sitting here in Silicon Valley working in tech companies. I mean, it's great. Yeah, how does that compare? I mean, how do you feel, big company versus small? You know, startup versus established. You know, I don't know if you have a preference per se, but what's the what's the advantage? So I think there's there's sort of pros and cons to all these things. You know, in the startup, you have to do a lot more yourself. You have to rely on yourself a lot more. But you have the ability to influence a lot more, right? You can have a bigger impact on the whole company if you're in a small company than you can if you're in a really big company. Uh, at least that's been my experience. I think you can you can also see what the problems are going to be. If you're in a fi- you know, fast-growing company, you know the kind of problems they're going to have before the people inside the company experience those problems. So you can you can be improving the company before they've even hit the problems. So you're removing the problems before they hit them. That's quite exciting to be able to do. Because a lot of the time you join a company, you're doing cleanup for a while. Yeah. Right. And so uh, a lot of companies hire a CIO too late in the process. Like a lot of tech companies have often done that. Yeah, that was one of the things Alvina said. I mean, that's whatever, episode two. That was her big thing was she was like, you got to hire a CIO. Like you have so much, you're going to have so much technical debt. If you're hiring a CIO, like 
gearing up to IPO, like you're going to be really hurting and all your systems are going to be absolute madness. Yeah. You know, people, again, they do what they know and they often don't know how it's going to work out, especially these days. There's so much sort of consumerization of the cloud that people just get up and buy stuff on a credit card and just start doing things. Oh, totally. And so you have 15 ways of doing the same thing in a company and you don't even know it. Right, because you're not inspecting, you're not looking, you don't have time. You just say, get this stuff done, and people just go do it, and they get it done. You think, great, yay, party, everything's done the way you want. And then it's only when someone looks under the covers and says, do you know, we have these like eight different things doing the same thing, and like now people can't communicate with each other because the data's all fragmented in different places, but it was never a problem at day one. Right, only becomes a problem at day 500, but no one thinks that far ahead because you're in a startup, right? You can't think that far ahead. So there is a bit of a- There might not be a day 500. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, to hire a CIO too early is often uh, a luxury you can't afford as a startup. And so I think even when people know they're storing up problems for the future, they just do it anyway because, you know, they're under pressure to deliver to market. Otherwise, they might be out of VC money. They need to get revenues, right? They need to do something. So there's all these pressures on startups to, like, put product out, right, and show sales. Then you can start investing more. But if you spend big at the beginning, like, you're out of money. So... I think CEOs are not foolish in delaying the decision. It's just kind of what they're forced into doing. What they generally do is undersell to the CIO how bad it is. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good one. <laughs> that is one I'll hold them guilty for. One of the areas that spending is particularly volatile in startup world is on cybersecurity. Did you imagine, you know, that cybersecurity would be you know, a subscription service? Did you imagine that there would be these kind of things? And like, how exciting is that, that there are, you know, solutions that can really help make people, you know, see the impact, track impact in a way that is meaningful when traditionally, you know, cybersecurity stuff for percentage of time was kind of the snake oil salesman. I think Uh, it still is. Or still, yeah, there you go. Many companies, it still is. You know, I think CFOs are often scratching their head saying, I keep on adding more and more money to security budget, but I don't know if I'm any safer. Yeah. Right? Because they look around and companies are still getting breached and they look at all the companies got breached and they all spend a lot of money on security. Yeah, right. Very, you know, big staffs of security professionals on, on in the inside the company. So you look at that and think, well, those guys still got hacked or breached or compromised, right? So, you know, if that could happen to them, it could happen to us. Like, are we really any better? Like, what should I do? And so I think, uh, yeah, there's still a lot of FUD. There's a lot of snake oil salespeople out there selling all sorts of, you know, magic potions that actually don't really do that much. And it's it's hard for us people to know where to draw the line. Like, am I spending enough? Am I not spending enough? Am I doing enough? And I think boards ask those questions. Right? Yeah. And so, you know, a CISO will come up, talk to the board, and the board's usually left baffled with what happened, right? We don't understand any of that. And so... I think you just need to... Yeah, not a lot of CISOs on boards. That would be a great... Oh, man, we should do an IT Visionaries report. How many board members have security experience? Yeah, very few. That's interesting. Very few. And even those that do got into it tangentially, right? They were an audit partner at a accounting firm or something, right? So they end up on the audit committee and then board members look around and say, well, you're kind of the closest to security, so you should do it. And then they feel like, well, if I've got to do this, but I don't really know, how do I get my sort of trusted, knowledgeable people around me? 
And so they're going to spend time talking to a CISO and get to know them. And CISOs have to learn board speak so that they can communicate with these guys who don't know anything about security. And that's something that tech guys are accustomed to doing, right? If you're a tech guy in a company, you're accustomed to speaking to people who don't know anything about technology. Yeah. Especially if you're a CIO or a CISO, that's stock in trade, right? That's what you're doing all the time. And again, you've got to treat security like anything else. Talk about business outcomes, talk about risk management, talk about ROI, and show people what value you're adding rather than just saying, hey, we didn't get a breach this year, must be good. Yeah. Mic drop, right? I mean, that's not how you're going to be able to persuade people they're doing the right thing. So how do you do that? I mean, how how have you seen people, whether it's, you know, CIOs or, or CISOs or whoever, how can they show that? How can they show business outcomes and, and speak intelligently to those things in a way that non-technical folks understand? You know, um, I think you have to establish what you're going for, right? And so what I would try and persuade people to do is say, look, first of all, accept that prevention is possible. I'll tell you a little story about this. I was the last year, the last 12 months or so, I've had the opportunity to speak to a lot of security professionals. Right? I've been to conferences where CISOs go hang out. And I spoke to a lot of board directors as well. And so I was on one of these panels and I asked the room, the room was full of CISOs and security professionals. And I said, how many of you think, how many of you believe that in your company, a breach is inevitable? And most of the hands in the room went up. Wow. So I thought, wow, these are the guys who are tasked with preventing breaches, and most of them think it's inevitable, right? So that gave me a pause. I was like, wow, that's like a, okay, that's a moment. And then I was in a different conversation with a bunch of board, board directors. And I said to them, how many of you guys think the CISO should be held accountable, right, as in fired, if you get a breach in your company? And they all were unanimous, like, absolutely, and probably the CIO too. Right? So <laughs> that's wild. So you put those two statements together and how do you reconcile them? So you've got a room full of security professionals who are convinced they're going to get breached. And you've got a board who says, as soon as we're breached, we're firing the CISO and getting a new one. Well, no wonder the CISO life expectancy is about 18 months. Like, yeah. How could it not be? Yeah, it's like the uh, in the Wild West where you have the the dude sitting on the horse with the noose around their neck tied to the tree right <laughs> and it's like the horse is like slowly walking toward like trying to eat all the food around it uh and not run away you just it it feels inevitable so that's think, wild so i think to to reconcile those two sort of opposing positions you've got to change the CISO mindset and say prevention really is possible and so if they can believe that a breach isn't inevitable, right, then how do they demonstrate they've got to that prevention state? Right? I think that's the kind of question and the kind of thinking you need to evolve them to is, look, if you can throw all the malware you've, you can find at your own defenses and they withstand it, then you're in a good place. Yeah. But how many people do that? Right? Maybe you call up a, a pen tester, right? So a penetration tester is mm -hmm. a service you can rent and... Uh, Generally, you do a very narrow specification of only go test this stuff over here, but don't worry about this stuff over here. We got that, we got that covered. And so what you want is continuous, random, not announced penetration testing of your environment. If you had that going on, you'd find all the, all the places where bad things could happen or are happening. You'd find them. 
most companies don't do that. They don't operate on that basis. And they all say, oh, we're not ready for that. Well, when will you be ready? Yeah, then it is inevitable. You know, if, you're, if your posture is that we're not ready for that, it's like, then you have a pretty good chance. I mean, so you, you would not subscribe to the, to the theory that there's two types of companies, those who have been hacked and those who don't know they've been hacked? I'd say it's probably a true statement right now for many companies, unfortunately. But it shouldn't be. It doesn't have to be. I want to talk a little bit more about silence, AI, and predictive analysis, machine learning. Why is this such a powerful technology? And why is this something that allows for best practices in cybersecurity to increase that posture, that security posture going forward? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to talk to any security professional or technology professional these days and find they're not doing AI something. Yeah. So I think you have to look at how the AI is being used. And, uh, you know, the security profession is known for being a very reactive profession. They usually wait for something to happen. And then, you know, they think that the fastest they can respond to that means they can limit the amount of damage that can be done. Right? So think about what I just said. That's not prevention. That's rapid response to an emerging situation. Yeah. Right? So if you're the best first responder, you can contain the damage. That's the mentality of most security organizations. So the way they instrument their environment is yeah, to like collect the all these alerts and data from all these different parts of their environment and then stick them in one place and flood this place, right? Usually a screen with alerts. And then there's way too many alerts for any human being to possibly be able to look at. I mean, you're talking about millions of events per day. And so out of the millions of events, you maybe get a few thousand or a few tens of thousand alerts. So then they put the AI on that to try and sift it down into some manageable number that a human can inspect or a bunch of humans, right? Usually in a 24 by 7 security operations center. And so that's what they're doing. They're looking at these alerts that have been triaged by the AI. And I'm thinking, that's just such a backward way of doing it. Why wouldn't you use the AI to only let a trickle of events come through in the first place? Yeah. Right? Like, stop everything, prevent it, and then say, this thing's probably worth looking at. And that's it. And that's where silence kind of came from its name as well. It's like, now you get silence in your sock. Oh. You don't have all these, like, flood of alerts. I didn't know that. That's partly it. There's probably other parts of that name as well it's a multi multi sort of loaded word i mean it's like having the best firefighters in the world but you never do anything to like clear brush or or prevent forest fires you know you're not doing any anything you're just so, saying so people think they are right people think they are because patching is the equivalent of that right so as long as you keep all your servers patched you'll be resistant against the threats but again things are going to sleep through they're always going to slip on past the goalie. Any other stuff that um, specifically on on cyber that you wanted to talk about, or any insights that that you've kind of heard, or whisperings from the you know CIO or CISO community about this sort of stuff that you think might be relevant? I think the first is you know that sort of irreconcilable board versus CISO view I was describing. Yeah. I think that's at the heart of it. You have got to solve that. I think you have to instill belief in CISOs that they can actually survive more than 18 months, right? That they can actually prevent, that they can do security well and not have to keep ratcheting up their budget and justify their existence, so that they can actually just do it good as a profession. 
and then they'll satisfy their stakeholders like any other business professional does, right? We all have to account for what we're doing to shareholders and to our executive team colleagues and justify the budgets we have and show ROI. And, you know, if it's risk mitigation, there's ways of measuring that, that we've, yes, the risk was here and now it's something less than that. So I think once we can quantify those measures of value, then you've matured that profession. And I think that there are probably too many vested interests in not doing that. Think of how many security companies there are and they're all making money yeah. knowing that you've got this flawed situation in place, right? It's what um, our CISO calls the economics of insecurity, yeah, right? That we're all spending money in enterprises you know, needlessly. Or so, to CYA, right? And some of that too, but it's also needlessly, right? Yeah. So I think if you could mature the profession, you could right-size it in terms of staffing and budget, and it'd be just like any other function. Yeah, I think that the kind of like disease of more around this around, and I'm sure you've seen some of the same stats of like, you know, the cybersecurity market is like, should actually be 10 times bigger. You know what I mean? Or like the amount of money spent should be 10 times bigger, which again, I'm not, I'm not saying is wrong or right. I'm just saying like, there's a lot of stuff out there that it's like the threat that is looming is absolutely massive. But I think the way you're saying is really interesting. And it's something I haven't heard before of First, we have to get the mindset shifted at the very top level to think that this is something that we can do. Otherwise, adding budget constantly can't be the solution. Adding budget is just adding to a number that you're spending. It's not adding to outcomes. Yeah. And, you know, I'd like CISOs to say we should spend less. That's what they should be saying. Right. If you think of, you know, as a CIO, uh, I used to sign my name every time we did our quarterly filings, right? In a public corporation, right? Officers have to sign off to say, yeah. But the minute you sign your name there, you've taken up a fiduciary responsibility. Yeah. And that changes the way you think. Now your mindset, if you're doing the right thing by the shareholder, is to do the most with the least. And so that's contrary to most companies' reward systems. You only get promoted because you've got a certain amount of staff and a certain amount of budget. Otherwise, you're not a VP or a SVP yeah. or whatever, right? Which clearly is backwards, yeah. right? You should reward those people that are doing the most with the least because they're the ones that are creating and delivering the most shareholder value. But why don't companies do that? Yeah, we were talking to someone who um, has like a $1.1 billion budget, IT budget and team of like thousands. And their kind of mandate is like, keep, keep everything running like it is. It's like, shouldn't it be something different than that? I mean, I have some sympathy for people who find themselves in that situation. Oh, totally. I, yeah, not to say that, not to say that, but if that's the mandate, it's like, that's a tough, it's, a, it's tough to be innovative when that's the mandate. It's tough to be innovative and, you know, you've got to be bold, right? And sometimes you just got to slog it out. But imagine if you're two big, giant companies coming together and you look at the cost and expense and time to do a full integration, you think, this could be like seven years and cost like multiple billions of dollars. Or we could just keep it. <laughs> yeah. And that's where you get your billion a year run rates. Like, we'll just leave it. And nobody wants to take on that multi-year long-term investment. Because typically the people who start those things aren't there when they're finished. CEOs aren't there. CFOs aren't there. CIOs aren't there, right? People usually don't go on that marathon and finish it. 
someone else. It's like a relay race. You hand the baton on to someone else. And uh, people don't have the stomach for starting and trying to see all that, you know, see some of that all the way through. And sometimes you just have so many other competing business priorities, you can't get to it, even if you wanted to. Even if you saw the strategic benefit of doing that, you still can't get to it. So you end up with a $1.1 billion budget and you hope it can do. <laughs> what's, a, what's a question that you never get asked that you wish you got asked more? Nobody ever wants to know like how stuff works. They just want to get it done. Yeah. Right? It's like, do you realize how difficult this is? They don't care. So I think sometimes a bit of curiosity in how you get things done would be welcome. I know a lot of engineers I work with think that no one ever sees the value of what they do, especially if you're working doing back-end engineering, right? It's like no one, literally no one sees what they've done. So you've got this iceberg effect in technology, right? So the the smallest part of IT is visible. Yeah. And the biggest part, no one knows what's going on there, but it's where all the real smart stuff is happening. And people don't care. They just don't want to, don't want to know. They're like, your help desk is not good enough or this user experience sucks, right? That's what they care about which is actually okay. That's kind of what they should care about because that's the interfaces they have. But I think just a little bit of professional respect would be welcome. Yeah, we we actually use that same analogy in uh, for podcasting. It's like the vast majority of the work that, that all of the work that is done is the is the iceberg, right? Like you don't see you know, all the other stuff. Nobody cares about podcasting stuff, but that's part of the point, right? It's like you don't see the you know, reaching out, the scheduling, the writing, the prep, the like all that sort of stuff, the post, the growth, the like getting it out into the world, getting it to new lists, you know, all that sort of stuff. But the same sort of ideas. You know, I had a boss when I was in the army who said, he's like, I know you're doing your job when I never hear from you. I'm like, that's horrible advice. <laughs> like that's, I get what you're saying, but doesn't exactly inspire uh, a ton of uh, loyal leadership. Yeah, it's that's not inspiration at all. No. That's basically saying, don't be a problem and you're doing a good job. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, hmm. But that's the that's the keep the lights on mentality. That's the ticket taking mentality that I think a lot of the CIOs that we talk to and IT leaders are so resentful of and have a lot of baggage from earlier in their careers where that was the mantra for a long, long time. And then now that there's this glimpse of the other side that is exciting, that is how this all integrates into something that does, you know, really matter to people and then they care about that it's this liberating feeling. Well, I think you've got to first criticize the CEOs with such low expectations, yeah. right? And say, you got the CIO you deserved, right? So I think they have to own that first. And when they say, I need a new type of CIO, they have to look in the mirror first because Technology now for most companies is too important to be left to the CIO, right? You can't have one individual own something that's the lifeblood of the business. Yeah. That's just crazy. So everybody has to own it, starting with the CEO. And especially if you're trying to do a digital transformation. Digital transformation means we want to change the way we do business, right? Well, how could you leave that up to the tech guy? I mean, that makes no sense. The CEO's got to own it from the top. And I think that's where a lot of companies make those kind of mistakes. And then they're disappointed because they want to blame the CIO. But it's their, it's their own collective failure. You know, it's, um, I think it's, it's just a cop-out to blame a single individual when it's really a collective responsibility. Yeah, one of the best CIOs that 
I've talked to is the head of facilities. And his job is to eliminate barriers to work. And so like a lot of the stuff that he does, that's like, and I mean, a CIO in like the old school kind of way of like, he just eliminates barriers to work for everyone in the company through technology, through workspace, through like all these things. And he sets up everything and then allows their CTO to do the stuff that, 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 that person's, you know, is great at. And it's like one of those kind of interesting situations, like who would have ever thought, right? No, it's an interesting take because, you know, a lot of CIOs should see their job that way as removing friction for employees, removing barriers that are getting in the way of things you want to accomplish as your business goals. And some of those might be external to the company, some of them might be internal, but that's where you either solve things yourself because you can, or you partner with other executives because that's what you need to do to accomplish the goal. And so I think, uh, you know, if more CIOs had that as their core mentality, they would view themselves differently and their colleagues would regard them differently as well. But not keep the lights on with your $1.1 billion. <laughs> it's a lot of light. Hope, it, hope it's uh, a lot of lights. Yeah. Hope they're using uh, solar. Um, they're turning on new lights every year as well. So they've got to spend more money. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's get into the lightning round. Fast and easy questions, stuff you've never seen before, stuff we didn't send you in our prep. Oh, now you got me. Yeah, that's right. Thanks again to our friends at the Lightning Platform by Salesforce. Also, fast and easy, just like these questions. Are you ready? I hope so. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? I don't know if I'm having a lot of fun. I seem to be just working on my phone these days. That's why we asked the question. <laughs> um, probably if I'm reading, like not for work, that's probably where I'm having fun. Kindle app? Yeah. Do you have a favorite podcast or recent book that you've listened to or read recently? Podcasts, I sort of mix it up. I think I showed you my you did, podcast yeah. screen, so you saw a few on there, so I had to mix it up. I like the Freakonomics one. I like uh, Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History one. Really so good. Books. I recently read Sapiens. Yeah. Um, you read that? Oh, yeah. Uh, Yuval Noah Harari. Yeah, that was good. I enjoyed that. Do you have a favorite one-day getaway here in the Bay Area? Probably Half Moon Bay. It's Great. It's close to here, and you know you can get there and back in a day and not feel stressed out. Like If you go to Napa or Tahoe, I mean, that's going to hurt. That's a long day. Do you ever do the Pumpkin Festival in Half Moon Bay? I've I've seen it. I've seen the traffic associated with it. No, I, have, I haven't done it. You don't mean web traffic. You mean literal, literal traffic. <laughs> yeah, real cars. Um, what do you do for fun? You know, I try to hang out with my kids as much as I can. Um, so we ski. Um, my youngest son is a soccer fanatic. Actually, it's his birthday today. Oh, happy birthday. Um, he's, you know, being a soccer fanatic, he's doing soccer practice tonight. Yeah. <laughs> so he celebrated his birthday last night. So yeah, that's what I do. And I'm always up for new adventures. I'm always looking for some interesting thing to do that I've never done before. So uh, that's another podcast we could talk about yeah. a bunch of experiences I've had on things that people don't get to do. Name an example. I got to fly in a flight fighter jet two months ago. That's fun. Yeah. How was that? It was awesome. It was a F-104. It's called a Starfighter. It's what they used to train astronauts in. Wow. And this thing is, it's quite literally a rocket. So, you know, we did a vertical ascent. 25,000 feet in 15 seconds. Oh my goodness. Uh, went supersonic. Yeah, it was very cool. And I actually got to 
take the controls for about five minutes. Got to do a roll, a barrel roll. No kidding. Yeah, it was awesome. That's crazy. I'll show you the pics later. Yeah. What's your favorite use of AI or chatbots that you've seen recently? So I've been um, advising a company called Espressive, mm-hmm. and they have, I think it's like a virtual assistant, kind of like a chatbot, where it's an interface you put on top of enterprise applications for people that want to get help. And so rather than call the help desk, they can just type into this and say, tell me what the holiday schedule is, or tell me how to reset my password, or tell me you know stuff that is you know, getting in your way, but you don't want to make phone calls and ask people to open tickets and stuff. So this will act like a, a search and come back and give you the information. And if it can't, if your question is one it's never seen before, it'll go open a ticket in the back end for you. So the help desk is working on it, or facilities, or whoever needs to get it is working on it for you. And then it just kind of updates you to say, hey, I've taken this action and someone will get back to you. Or, hey, they just did some work on this. Go look at the update. Sweet. We'll link that up in the show notes. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. What technology are you most excited about going forward? You know, there's... um, That's a hard question to answer. There's uh, so many technologies now that are really exciting. And I think the exciting thing is the mashups you can do with the technology. There's so much convergence going on. So... You know, you take, say, big data techniques and apply them to with blockchain, and maybe there's now a brand new way of transactions, right? That would be cool, and, and there's pretty people working on that already. And then you look at sort of mobility, right? Think of how many people there are in the world and how many of them are still illiterate. Yeah. And look at what the phone has done for them. And I think you could do a lot more with that as a mobile platform to empower people to do things when they're still in that illiterate or semi-literate state, but empower them through symbols or or video, right, or images or just enable conversations. Yeah, we talk about that all the time with this podcast because I think we're in um, over 129 countries. But we have people listening. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and thanks to all of our listeners for just being amazing and, and, and all the support. And yeah, it's... It's remarkable. I mean, we have listeners in so many countries that you're like, man, we got, you know, like shout out to the the five people in Chad that are listening, you know, like the, stuff like that. And you <laughs> see it's so cool. Yeah. Um, but you just think about like the idea of democratizing this type of, you know, conversation that if you're not growing up next to someone that that person, if you never had that person in your hometown that is an IT professional this is a route to get that mentorship one-on-one in a cool way. And uh, yeah, it's it's really exciting. I mean, well, it, think about how you're going to deliver education, right? I mean, there's these institutions here in the US, right? Really elite, prestigious you know, institutions who are educating the people that really are going to be okay anyway. Yeah, totally. Right? And, you know, you can look at places on our doorstep here who only take the elite. So it's like, okay, so you're educating all the people that are going to be okay. What about all the people that aren't going to be okay? What's your responsibility as an institution of learning to help the rest of the world? And I think that's where a lot of higher education institutions are going to get called to task because they keep on putting their fees up and they're only educating the people that don't really need them. Yeah. I mean, Clayton Christensen's professor at Harvard, like died in world Harvard guy. And he was like, we're getting disrupted by University of Phoenix. (laughs) And he's like, and people were like, what? Like all this stuff. But he's like, they teach 450,000 people a year. And like, again, it, not to say it's a, it, it's more of the inside of like. Yeah, but look at how Coursera is now partnering with universities. Absolutely. Right? So 
And again, it's coming through a mobile phone to most people. So that is now a platform for online education, which I think is going to disrupt traditional education. It has to, right? It's such a low cost and high quality medium now. So why wouldn't you do that? And it fits in with people's lives, right? They can do that. So I definitely see that as already on the way. It's going to come if it's not already there. And we had Josh from uh, from Lambda School on, and we're talking about the, some of the stuff that they're doing. And you're like, it's really interesting. Yeah. And it, look how liberating and empowering that's going to be in providing opportunities for people, right? It's not just the acquisition of the education. Now they can, they've learned to do something they couldn't do before. That's what's really going to be powerful. Think of what crowdsourcing could be now if you have all these empowered and educated individuals around the world. So how work gets done is going to get a big boost if you have these literate, educated workforces all around the world that are now able to engage. I think there's a real possibility for, you know, lots of upside there. Yeah, that's why we don't pay well any of our content. It's like for some people that, that that's their business model, that's totally fine. But for us, it's like, you know, there's 5 billion people in the world that can't afford to pay for Netflix and Hulu and, you know, the New York Times and The Post and all that sort of stuff. Not that there's anything wrong with those places, but you just have to like take a look at the monetary stuff and it's just not not realistic. Yeah. I think for a few brands, it's, it's, it's going to work that way. But everyone else trying to crack into it, I mean, if nobody knows you, why would they pay for you? Yeah. It's um, final question of the lightning round. What's your best advice for a first time CIO? Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> I think being a CIO is like a mental affliction. Like, who would really want to do it? You know? <laughs> so, yeah, why do you think CIOs like hang out and talk to each other so much? We're like each other's support group. No, I think you've got to be a particular kind of individual to want to be a CIO. And just loving technology isn't enough. You know, you've got to be okay with like giving your ideas away and you've got to be okay with not getting thanked, but getting blamed. And as long as there's some professional acceptance of what you're doing around the exec suite, right, then it kind of works. But some people take things really personally when they're not getting kudos for stuff. And so, yeah, it's not, it's not a place for the needy for sure. And you've got to have a high tolerance for pain. You know, I'm not selling it very well, am I? No, I think you're selling it great. I think that that's just business. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. <laughs> awesome. Anything else? Any final thoughts? This has been awesome. I, I, I love the the candid nature of the, the conversation. And um, yeah, it's just been, been great. Yeah, no, this out. has been fun for me. The time's gone really quick. I know, right? So, um, any, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll, I'll come back sometime. We can talk about other things like um, what it's like to be old in IT. <laughs> uh, or what it's like to be in a total cloud company like at Silence, 100% cloud. Yeah. So you could do things with 100% cloud that you can't do in companies that are mixed, that are hybrid. Yeah. Uh, so that's cool. That's another topic we could look into. Yeah, that's great. That That's an awesome one. I mean, I think that, and we, something we've like touched on here and there, and we've touched on hybrid cloud a little bit, but um, yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, I can think of some other stuff too. Awesome. We'll do it another time. Yeah, thanks so much for hanging out. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me here. Thank you again to our friends at Salesforce. IT Visionaries is brought to you by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce. Salesforce just introduced the Lightning Platform Mobile, the low-code mobile app development platform that empowers anyone to easily build, publish, and manage AI-powered mobile apps for employees and for customers. Find out more at salesforce.com slash build mobile apps.